Hello and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Tim Harford, the Financial Times journalist whose first book, The Undercover Economist, has sold over a million copies. That book showed readers the invisible economic underpinnings of everyday life. Tim's second book, The Logic of Life, is out now in paperback, and I met Tim in a crowded cafe recently to find out more about it. He writes about how humans, much of the time, behave in a way which could be called rational. But, I asked, that doesn't mean that they are like Mr Spock, doing a cost-benefit analysis of every decision, from buying a tumble dryer to getting married. Yes, Mr Spock is, is not just a Vulcan, he's also a straw man. You often hear people say, well, people don't behave like in the textbooks, and as though they've discovered something absolutely fascinating and original. Economists know that. The rationality that I'm talking about is quite pragmatic. I'm certainly not saying that people are infallible. I'm not saying they're never subject to temptation, they never make mistakes. Clearly, all these things are true of real human beings. What I am saying is that we are surprisingly good at weighing up costs and benefits, at weighing up risks and rewards in, in quite unexpected situations. I don't think it's especially controversial to say that um, we think about costs and benefits when we're going shopping. But to say that we, we think about costs and benefits when we're deciding whether to have unprotected sex, or we think about costs and benefits when deciding how to behave on a speed date, that I think is a more interesting statement. So I'm not making some dramatic statement about the fact that we're all supercomputers because we're not. What I'm saying is that costs and benefits impinge on our lives in unexpected ways. And that's not a, an assumption of economics. People often say that's what economists assume. In the logic of life, that's data-driven. You know, it's sure, we have this view that people are mostly rational, and then we go and we test it, and we see, and the logic of life is all, all about the evidence. And you've mentioned sex already in the first couple of minutes of our discussion, and the book begins with a discussion of, of oral sex amongst American teenagers, which I think clearly indicates that this is, this is a book which, which casts its net very wide and shows that economists have moved far beyond whether we buy a, a new tumble dryer or not. Yes, I don't talk about the, the oral sex example when I give speeches about the book, but I did want to begin with it, not just because, well, sex sells, let's be honest, I know that, but it's actually the perfect illustration of the hypothesis of the book, because you have the so-called oral sex craze that America is up in arms about, and actually you get quite a lot of writing about it in the UK as well. Oprah Winfrey is concerned, the New York Times are concerned, and all sorts of, I think, very lazy hypotheses about this, this oral sex craze. So it's because of pornography. Uh, it's because of the sexualization of society. So all I did was to look at the evidence. And the evidence is, well, yes, oral sex is a lot more prevalent, but at the same time, kids are losing their virginities later. And when they have protected sex, they're more likely to protect themselves with a condom than they are to protect themselves with a pill. So you add all that up and you say, well, that's not an oral sex epidemic. That's a safe sex epidemic. And that's a rational response to the increased risks of AIDS. So there's your, there's your theory. And then the question is, well, what's the data? And the real data comes from seeing the differential response of teenagers across the US when different American states, you've got 50 American states, they've all got different legal systems, different American states introduce restrictions making it harder for teenagers to have abortions, but they don't make it harder for adults to have abortions because they can't. Constitutionally, they can't. 
And when they do, what they've done is raise the cost of unprotected sex. And what happens? Well, we don't know how people change their behavior, but we do see the effects. And the effects are that the infection rate, sexually transmitted infection rate amongst teenagers in those states that introduce those abortion laws falls relative to the adult population. So add it all up. You've got laws which are introduced in a few states which specifically make it more risky for teenagers to have unprotected sex. And the response, but not adults, and the response is that teenagers, but not adults, seem less likely to acquire sexually transmitted infections. And then tell me again that we're not really seeing a safe sex epidemic. We do respond to incentives. Now, one area of human activity where it seems as though this rationality, even if it's sort of an unconscious rationality, might bump up against explanatory problems is the area of addiction. And, you know, there's alcohol addiction, drug addiction, nicotine addiction, gambling addiction. If, if we've got this sort of internalized model of, of, of rational behavior, how come so many of us have so many addictions? I think clearly the pure Mr. Spock view of rationality doesn't leave any space for any, anything called an addiction. You can't have an addiction, right? You, you either you smoke because you like smoking or you don't smoke because you don't like smoking. But you, you don't have temptation. You don't have people who want to quit but don't quit. So we're clearly more complicated than that. But here, what really interests me is that there still seems to be an important underpinning of rationality in the way we get addicted. So the clearest sign of this is the way we respond to predicted price rises. So if the price of cigarettes is going to go up next year because the government says, well, I'm going to raise taxes on cigarettes next year, what we see is a fall in smoking right now. Now that's very hard to explain. If you have a totally, um, a totally irrational addict, they're not going to respond to price changes. But if you have somebody who's not addicted at all, well, they don't respond to price changes in that way either. They say, well, I'm going to smoke more now, and when the price of cigarettes goes up, I'll smoke less. That's the rational thing to do. Instead, we get somebody who is a rational addict, somebody who's addicted, knows they're addicted, and thinks about the costs and benefits of that, who says, the price of cigarettes is going to rise. It's going to get more expensive. I should start quitting now because it's not going to be easy. And the more I smoke now, the harder it's going to be able to quit, to, to quit in future. And that's how people behave when they smoke. It's how people behave in response to increase in uh, taxes on gambling. Also seems to be the way that drinkers behave. One of the fascinating things I discovered in writing the book, which is very relevant to Sir Liam Donaldson's proposal to have a minimum price for alcohol, is that when alcohol taxes go up, consumption of alcohol falls, that's not a big surprise. But extreme consumption of alcohol seems to fall more. So cirrhosis of the liver falls much more dramatically than overall alcohol consumption. So it's, it's the problem drinkers who are the ones who are cutting back more. Actually, when you take a step back and think about it, that makes sense. Two types of problem drinkers, people who drink a lot, and people who are young and binge. And both of them are, don't have enough money to afford all this drink. And so they are price sensitive. Now, some listeners might be surprised to hear that you as an economist want to get some purchase on racism to try to, to use economic analysis in order to explain the mechanisms whereby racism is, is perpetuated. And one of the things which will really stick in my mind in the book is an experiment that you describe 
um, among university students, where some of the players in an experiment had to make a choice between green and purple players who were job candidates in, in the experiment. So what this experiment was trying to do was explore uh, how stereotypes could form. You had a group of players of this game who were pretending to be workers, and they could be either green workers or purple workers. So these are just labels, they've got no significance, no baggage, nothing. And then the other half of the class, because it was a classroom experiment, were employers trying to decide whether to employ green workers or purple workers, or both or neither. And the workers had to decide whether to educate themselves. And then they could take a test which would indicate whether they were educated or not, but the, the employers didn't know for sure whether these workers were educated or not. All they could see was the test result and green or purple. An amazing thing happened. Very quickly, the employers, on the basis really of overreacting to some random results, the employers started to employ green workers. They start, came to the conclusion that the green workers were the educated ones and the purple workers weren't. And in response, perfectly rationally, the green workers started making sure they did get an education and the purple workers gave up because an education is expensive and you can't get a job. Uh, if you're not being given a job, it's not worth getting an education. And in 20 minutes, you had these racial stereotypes built up. The, the purple workers, they're lazy, they don't, they don't acquire education. And by the way, it turns out the stereotypes were true. They were self-fulfilling because the, the purple workers didn't get an education. 20 minutes is all it took. You don't need the, the legacy of slavery or anything. And the students got so angry. The purple workers would say, you, you, you weren't employing me. I, I, would, I didn't get an education because you wouldn't employ me. And their employers would say, well, I wouldn't employ you because you didn't get an education. What was very striking about this example is that's been backed up by real world data. So a couple of economists mailed out 5,000 CVs to real employers. Some of them were very good CVs, some of them were less good. And with a toss of a coin, they put either distinctively white names or distinctively African-American names on the, top of the, on the top of those CVs. They mailed them out to see what sort of response they got. What they found, well, disturbing but not surprising, the white CVs got more invitations to interview than the black CVs, even though it was purely the toss of the coin, there was no difference in quality between the CVs. More disturbing, the good white CVs got more job offers or interview offers than the mediocre white CVs. But the good black CVs with more education, with more experience, did not get any more interview offers than the mediocre black CVs. So you, there you had, in black and white, so to speak, in a, in a real world experiment, the same response that you got in this little laboratory game. Employers not respecting the qualifications of black workers and black workers in response not getting qualified because why would you? We respond to incentives. If the qualification is valueless, why would you acquire it? Let me ask you about cities because you, you're clearly very positive about cities and cities come across in the book as sort of machines that generate ideas. So why do you think cities are so sort of crucial to this, this worldview that you're, you're describing? Well, again, this is the evidence that comes out of the data. So, for example, we tend to think of people in cities as being paid more than people in the country. And that's not quite true. 
What actually is true is that people who have lived in cities for a long time are paid more than people who have lived in the countryside for a long time. If they leave cities and move to the country, they are paid more than people who lived in the country all their lives, but their, their rate of pay increase slows down. And if they move back to the city, it speeds up again. So it's, it's almost as though they're being rewarded for all the things that they're learning. And I, and I think it's, it's almost self-evident that cities help people learn. They are universities of life. You're always bumping into people. So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of cities. The other thing that people don't appreciate about cities is that cities are extremely environmentally friendly. The ownership of cars in cities is low. The use of public transport is very high. I'm not saying this is because of the, the moral superiority of urbanophiles, because it's not. It's nothing to do with, with morality. It's purely to do with the incentives. It's much easier to get around when, when you all live very close to each other. And it's expensive to have a big house. It's expensive to have a garden with lots of pesticide. It's expensive to buy a garage to put your third car in. None of this makes any sense. So instead you cram yourself into a tiny flat. You get to the flat via an elevator, which is one of the most efficient machines ever devised. Uh, and your flat is heated by the flat beneath and it heats the flat above you. And this is all very, very good for the planet and nothing whatsoever to do with morality. It's all the response to economic incentives. So I'm not saying the government should subsidize city living, but at the moment, the government taxes cities a lot and redistributes the benefits to the countryside. And I'm not quite sure when you've got this amazingly technologically creative and environmentally friendly way of living, why we want to tax it so heavily and pay people to move out to the sticks. I was really amused in the book that you, you go all the way back through human history and you apply a division of labour analysis to the reason why the Neanderthals might have died out. Tell me a little bit more about that. This is entirely speculative, but it's fun. I mean, the last chapter of the book is very, very speculative. I talk about the data, but there's not much data from one million years BC. But one of, one of the ideas that has been emerging from archaeology is that there are two, two types of division of labor that Homo sapiens was good at and Neanderthals weren't. One is division of labor between men and women. They're able to specialize more and everybody gets more done. Of course, we now regard that as a bit Stone Age. Well, the argument is, well, that's literally true. It is a Stone Age innovation, the division of labor between men and women. And also the general division of labor between different communities, which only works if you have trade. And the theory is that Neanderthals weren't very good at trade. They were perfect, they were strong, they were smart, but somehow they were missing the trade module from their brains. There's very little evidence of Neanderthal trade. And archeologists and economists who've run computer simulations of what sort of difference that might have made, have concluded, well, it could have made a huge difference and could have overcome the intrinsic advantages of the Neanderthals. They just weren't willing to trade with each other and that's why they died out, which, at a time when the world seems to be turning towards protectionism is, I think, worth remembering. Many of the ideas in your book are counterintuitive, and that, that I suppose, is part of its, its great attraction, which makes it so enjoyable. But do you hope that, having read it, people will be able to go out in the world and perhaps spot patterns for themselves, you know, armed with some of the, um, the, the concepts that you've introduced them to? Well, I hope so. The, the exciting thing for eco economics, for me, is that it's all around us. I, mean, I love reading books about quantum physics or that kind of thing, or astronomy, but it's not all around us in the same way. It doesn't affect everyday life in the same way. And economics really is every day. And I hope that people 
read my books and enjoy them, but also see the world a little bit differently and, and um, can become undercover economists of themselves.